Well, good morning, everyone. It's really good to see everyone this morning. Um, and we're going to be going into Titus chapter 1, uh, as we read in the scripture reading, uh, as a continuation of the yearly theme, just going through Titus uh, once a month through the year, uh, which means there's going to be 12 lessons. And uh, each of these lessons is going to be very challenging, has been very challenging already. But I want you to look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 15. So this is Paul writing to Titus, who is an evangelist. And so I think it makes sense that um, any evangelist would think very personally about these instructions. Titus 2.1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, which he seems to outline in this letter, the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. And then after he gets done kind of listing some things that God's people need to be careful to apply and to become, he says in verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Uh, what's really challenging about this letter is I do think this is like a sermon outline where First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus is kind of like what an evangelist should particularly be focused on teaching on that does have a public essence to it, but I think there's also a personal essence to it. Uh, and so there's a lot of growing that I need to do um, and applying these things, not just from like public teaching at assemblies, um, but thinking how to apply these things personally. But how challenging these things are is, is a good thing. It's, it's humbling and it's convicting and uh, it all leads us closer to God and gives us a deeper sense of being rooted in his grace and in his character. And this, this lesson is going to be challenging because this section is very sobering. There's a lot of difficult instructions that are given here. Uh, the, these things that are said are very heavy. They hold a lot of weight to them. Um, and so hopefully through this lesson, that, that can be conveyed in a way that can be balanced and applied and, and digested. But again, we're going to be in Titus 1, 10 through 16. And really the title of the lesson comes particularly from verse 13. So remember, Titus was in Crete. It's a little island that would have been northwest of the Palestine region. And in verse 12, he mentions that a poet of their own, that is someone from, from Crete, who is, um, I think his name was like Epimenides. It's like a complicated ancient name, but this, this poet is actually someone that historically, uh, this is a person who we have other writings of. Paul is quoting from Epimenides. When he says, Cretans are always liars, lazy, lazy, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. And I think he's referring to the fact that Titus needs to be ready to severely reprove just a Cretan in general, but also brethren who are far too influenced by their culture and inundated with behavior and mentalities of their culture rather than in the culture of God's kingdom. And so we don't need to be bound or victims of, bound to or victims of our culture. Rather, I think the instructions of Titus are relevant because our culture ultimately, I don't think is all that different. And just as our culture, so was the culture of Titus, where what was around him was not going to encourage godliness, but rather was going to aggressively discourage godliness. But that was not to determine the culture of the church or the church's ability to appoint faithful men to become qualified enough to be appointed to be overseers of local churches in that area within Crete, where the culture was uh, aggressively ungodly. So in 10 through 14, 
Really, this is a continuation of the final thing said about overseers and a uh, particular quality overseers need to have. Uh, so notice verse 9, amidst everything else, it says that these men are to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And you notice in verse 10, I believe the first word of every uh, translation, or at least any translation we would be using here, is for. Meaning, so because of this, you know, or as a result of this, or therefore, you know, why is this so critical in verse 10? There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. Uh, so why does a local church need spiritually strong, mature and qualified men who could be appointed as overseers, who are both rooted within God's word and a faithful handling of God's word, but also understanding in the right way his will. And they're willing not only to accept his will personally, but exhort people in his will to do it and to practice it. Uh, so that leads us to verses 10 through 16. This is one of, the me- one of the main reasons why the church needs sound, mature, rooted, experienced leadership among its members. So in verses 10 through 14, we're going to deal with dealing with danger. And I'm going to go ahead and read 10 through 14 again to kind of lead us into the points we'll make in this section. Titus 1, 10 through 14. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So again, why is it that the church needs on a local level men who are striving to grow, not just in general leadership qualities, but in how rooted they are within God's word and how willing they are to teach it and even to confront things that contradict God's word, whether that be behaviors or beliefs. Well, what Paul tells Titus, it's because of the prevalence of rebellion and deception and the temptation to tolerate these things. We actually see this in multiple letters to local churches. In Galatians, they were were tolerating Judaizing teachers, and we went through that last year, uh, how Paul handles equipping the church to deal with that. In 2 Corinthians, they're tolerate, tolerating, again, false teachers who are prideful. He even refers to them as people who are empty talkers and deceivers. In 3 John, there's a man who's named Diotrephes. And John mentions that the church should not be tolerating this man who loves to be first among them and is making wrong determinations, sinful determinations, about who gets to participate and be a part of that local church. And so this is simply a reality, not just for Crete, but obviously this being an inspired letter that God ensured was preserved and spread through time. This isn't just a problem that Titus would face within Crete, but it would be a problem that would be perpetuated through the ages. And again, verse 12, I think if you think about our culture, is it really much different than this? You know, like we talked about in Romans, as chapter 3 describes the true condition all people ultimately are in apart from God, and even just by sheer observation of our society. Is it really so far off to say that in our culture, people generally are liars? Not just, you know, 
a liar in a clearly dishonest sense, but being honest about their condition and the need for repentance, weakness, and humility. Are people evil beasts practicing what just feels good, obeying their lusts, or just doing what feels right to do, acting on sensuality? Or how about lazy gluttons? You know, it seems like in our society there's kind of a a common thing that it's hard to get people to work. But I mean, did you know that people can go to work every day and still be extremely lazy, even if they do their job? And I think that's especially seen in how much people complain or when they're asked to do something that doesn't just seem like a requirement for the job fundamentally, not something they already agreed to, just how that's, that's handled very begrudgingly. And it's just, you know, there's many, many complaints along the way and doing anything that's considered to be extra. So again, our society, I would argue, is not very far off from these things. So it's not just a problem of Crete, but a problem we face as well. And I think what we see in the Bible is ultimately the problem of rebellion and deception are from God's point of view, our two greatest problems. That's ultimately what we saw in Genesis last week in Carl's lessons. What are the two things that Satan needed Eve to do to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He first had to deceive her. And then if he could build a perspective and a new set of values on a deceived perspective, then he could equip her to rebel against God and his word. So I would argue that deception is ultimately our biggest problem And once we give in to deception, then rebellion is the next step. Rebellion tends to be uh, built on the foundation of deception. And this is what the the letters to the churches tend to address consistently is deception and rebellion. And how does this this work in Titus chapter 1? Notice in verse 11, it's people who upset whole families teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Uh, I think we see this commonly, not just in in terms of the world and deceptions that exist culturally in the world, religiously, in what's considered Christianity. But in my experience, from what I've seen in my limited experience, when somebody knows the truth, they've obeyed the truth, and sometimes even if they've been raised with Christian parents and they've kind of become extremely familiar with the truth, when someone begins to believe something doctrinally that is not biblically rooted, and it's something that would be a false doctrine, What tends to happen very commonly is they start teaching people behind the scenes. You know, they don't want to be very open about what they believe. They certainly won't be open about it with people who sternly disagree with them. But if somebody's willing to hear them out, they'll meet with them in their homes and they'll be given grooming people. And I've seen where suddenly churches that seem so strong have a major divide. I saw this with the congregation my brother attended when he went to college in Birmingham. I remember when we dropped my brother off there and would visit sometimes. The church seemed very stable, had an eldership, uh, but the evangelist who was a part of that church began to pay attention to uh, many different deceptive teachings, and he began becoming friends with people who had fallen away from the truth and begun actively preaching uh, false doctrines. And that church ended up where this evangelist was, split in half, even though it had elders who we thought were doing a good job shepherding their flock. And we've heard a lot of reflections about that situation since then, that there were warning signs that were being neglected, that there were things that were being taught, things that were being said, things that were being done privately that were not being properly addressed. And so it festered to the point where the entire church ended up being split in half. And things like that obviously can happen here. We've we've experienced on a small scale here, to be frank about it, uh, when the Adamis fell away, it started with uh, their son, Um, really investing in uh, messianic Judaism teaching and behind the scenes, 
things weren't being communicated and people began to be groomed to accept things that ultimately, if they were more open about it, uh, the conversation could give light uh, to things being contrary to the truth. And here's, here's the thing in verse 11. Are people who propagate these things, now, this isn't talking about people who have tender hearts and who are really trying to do the right thing. They're trying to figure things out very humbly. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about those who are brazenly propagating false teaching and rebellion. In verse 11, how's that to be treated? Are they to be patiently talked with and maybe just like try to persuade them and work with them? Maybe have like ongoing studies that go on for, you know, a period of months. No, they need to be silenced. And this needs to be, ha- this needs to be handled with urgency. The idea in Titus is this. And I think we see this encouraged through the New Testament letters to the churches, something that is sobering, always challenging. Pride and deceit thrive in environments where brethren are spiritually just being very lazy. They're really not being fervent in their relationship with God. They're they're really not reading their Bibles on their own. You know, sure, they may come to assemblies and listen, but there's not much investment through the week. If people are spiritually lazy, pride thrives in that environment. If brethren are weak, and just don't know how to hold firm to God's word or are cowardly. You know, I know that can sound like a a hard word, but we've got to have the kind of courage that Jesus and the apostles had where if if something is contrary to the truth, it's got to be confronted. Look at verse 13. Reprove them severely. Your translation may sharply, uh, may say sharply even. So how are these kind of situations to be treated? Again, humility and truth Thrive in environments where brethren are being fervent, where we are very proactively trying to grow in our faith, invest in our relationships, and to invest in our relationships because of the fact that we want to grow in our relationship with God, first and foremost. When we're strong in the Lord and not of ourselves, not a prideful sense of self-strength or self-exaltation, when we recognize that it's not about you and it's not about me, it's about the Lord. And what's more important than the Lord and the Lord's will? And so that requires courage. You might be different from me, but I find every time I have to have a hard conversation personally, it's extremely emotionally exhausting. Even if it's like a short conversation and it's resolved, you know, just the buildup of realizing something hard has to be said, the prayer that's involved, the anticipation of of what's going to happen, just the hope that this person is not going to lose it and withdraw, but that they'll take it humbly And even just if they don't take it well initially, after the fact, you know, you pray that they'll just humbly reflect on it and consider it. And knowing that, am I going to say things the right way? I'm probably not. And you just trust the Lord that this is what's needed for his sake. Again, back to Titus 2.15. He tells Titus, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. It's not something that you do because it's, it's fun because that's the easy thing to do. It's because that's what's important to the Lord. And what's important to the Lord needs to be what's important to us as well. So this idea that humility thrives in environments where being strong and courageous, that's what ultimately exalts truth and protects us from danger the way that it's outlined here. And we need to see things as God sees. Think what what can commonly happen. And again, I think Romans get to this in chapter 3 when it's dealing with the reality of our condition of sin, is we just don't tend to see things as God does. 
If I really saw people the way God describes them in Romans 3, I know I would be more evangelistic. If I saw how corrupt, if I saw how filthy and how far from God people really are, I would have so much more urgency to talk to people about God and I'd be willing to take more risks to share the gospel with people. And I know that that's just a reality. And it's the same among us as well. If we really see the danger involved in false teaching or signs that someone is beginning to move into the realm of deception, whether that be with something they believe or something they're practicing without realizing that that's sinful against God or leading them away from God, it's when we don't see things as God does that we begin to tolerate things that God doesn't tolerate. Again, as an example to some relevant situations, whenever someone falls away, I'm always able to look back and see far before they brazenly fell away, signs that they were moving in that direction. And I always try to think to myself, I have got to be more serious-minded and more urgent when I see those signs. Because the earlier you can begin warning someone, the more hope they have to recognize what's happening and be reflective on it. It is much easier for someone to reflect on their condition early on than when they've gone far down the path and have already made up their mind about the direction they're going. When we see things as God does, we gain urgency and conviction. To illustrate this, I don't know if you've seen these signs, but every once in a while I see signs that say things like, look for the signs of a stroke. You know, I'll see these in like apartment buildings or um, like, for instance, places like where John Doyle lives. You know, they'll have these signs, look for signs of a stroke. Why do they say that? Because it's an extremely serious, life-threatening condition that if you're not careful, you'll, you'll see what's going on and not recognize the seriousness of what's happening. And the person could actually die because you're just not seeing the urgency of what's really happening. With God's word, he equips us to see urgency in things that of our own perspective, we wouldn't take it that seriously. And that's where, again, these instructions are very sobering with recognizing, like verse 12, like verse 16, there's often a greater seriousness and gravity to conditions we would not see as badly as what God's word says they really are. And so ultimately, we need to be critical and thoughtful in our approach to teaching and to truth. So you look in verse 14, you know, so this severe reproof isn't just to whack someone on the head with the truth, but it's to turn them. So correction is meant to correct. It's meant to turn someone's attention somewhere else or to change a behavior, the direction of a behavior somewhere else. In verse 14, a person is not to be paying attention to Jewish myths, the commandments of men who turn away from the truth, but rather by implication on the truth itself. Does origin matter? with teaching and truth. Does origin matter? When I think about Jewish myths, think about that term myth just as something that man invented. You know, it has no biblical basis. It's just something that might sound religious, something that a Jew might teach as associated with biblical events, but really they just, they just made it up. It's actually not from the Bible. Or commandments of men. What if people just had the faith to ask the question, where did this teaching or practice come from? Is this something that God commands in the New Testament? Or is this just something historically that some religious person started teaching and doing and now it's just widely accepted? How much would people benefit if they would just simply ask that question, where does this come from? 
And to illustrate this idea of uh, does origin matter, um, a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, we went camping. John, Dan, and I, when Dan was visiting with Brethren in Hoboken. And we went camping in a swamp. And there were signs when we were entering the camp area, do not drink the swamp water. <laughs> you think, like, it goes without saying, right? But why would they put that sign there unless people actually drank it? So I want you to think about a what-if situation. You know, what if I hadn't brought in any water, which I did bring water, but what if I didn't bring any water? And there's a bunch of kids who were there. So it was like a father-son thing, and there were a lot of, like, three-year-olds, five-year-olds who were camping with us. What if, again, just a make-believe situation, I'm really thirsty, I don't have my own water, and one of the kids brings me a bottle full of water. And I say, oh, thank you, I was so thirsty, and I start drinking it. And he says joyfully, that came from the swamp. What am I going to do? I'm going to spit it out. Because swamp water, although it's still water, right? And you can't see any contaminants. It probably, it probably would look a little dirty. But let's say it looks clean. There are contaminants you can't see in that water that not only could make you sick, but could potentially kill you, right? So does origin matter? And by the way, those kids who were there were sweet. But would the sweetness and innocence of that child who, in that situation, wouldn't have wanted to hurt me or make me sick, would that have magically made the water better because of his intentions? I don't doubt that there are false teachers in the world where that's just what they're familiar with and they're just not studying the way they should or they're just not thinking about the Bible the way they should, whatever. The fact that they're deceived themselves and may have good intentions and maybe be very charismatic does not change the contaminants of false teaching. We have the responsibility to not assume that teaching magically becomes sound because someone is seemingly well-intending or genuine or fervent or very religiously excited about something that they believe. If it doesn't come from God, where does it come from then? And if it doesn't come from God, what does that say about the effect then of that teaching when it's believed and practiced? A sound faith is careful to put its attention on what comes from God and his word. And it is critical and thoughtful about those things, right? So with the next section, we see a priority on purity in 15 through 16. So I'll read this section here with what else is said about what it means to have a sound faith. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. I just, just imagine for a moment. There's so many things that in the New Testament talk about the condition either of a false teacher or someone who has obeyed the gospel and yet has completely fallen away to rebelling again. What if in describing someone, I said, yeah, that person, they're detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Probably think like, Bryant, you cannot talk that way about people. That's not right. And yet there it is in verse 16. Again, these are very sobering things that confront us with a hard reality to accept that in the midst of graciousness, hoping all things, believing all things, and trying to be extremely gentle and, and give great benefits of a doubt, that does not undermine the reality that sin is still sin. And that for those who believe in God and obey his will, to turn to and embrace sin, having known the truth, it is detestable. And a person can become worthless for any good deed. The idea of this is purity of heart, mind, and conscience is critical to our capacity 
and our ability to truly do what is good. And I want to look at a couple other passages in Titus to think about this. And I want to use an illustration after reading these passages. But these are two passages that I think are a centerpiece to Titus. So Titus 2, 11 through 15. Titus 2, 11 through 15. So this is kind of like, why be this way? Why do these things? So this is after the instructive commands given to different roles and genders. Verse 11, there's this word again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And notice this, this grace itself instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and notice this, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And look in chapter 3, verse 4. After Paul is again uh, telling Titus about applications we need to be very careful to make in the world, he says in verse 3, here's that word again, for... We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, notice this again, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And where does this lead us in verse 8? This is a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So to illustrate this, this idea that we've been purified for good works, and equipped in that way because we've been purified, cleansed, and washed, and justified. Um, there's been a few times recently where Eve and I, as like we're kind of mellowing our minds out for going to bed, we'll watch like restoration videos where someone takes something that's horribly rusted and decayed, and it just looks like it's too far gone to salvage, and they'll like completely restore it. So we watched one of an 1800s Singer sewing machine which Singer sewing machines are like beasts of like a machine. They're sewing machines that are just really, really well made and made out of really good material. Anyway, this Singer sewing machine was completely rusted over. It just, it looked like there's no way this could possibly be salvaged. And the amount of parts the person restoring it had to take out, the amount of work that he had to do to disassemble it and then clean everything, scrape everything, use special materials for it all, it was amazing. And by the time he was done with it, it looked brand new. And it was useful. Could it be used before it was restored? What if someone tried? What if someone said, well, it's a sewing machine. I can use it. Well, it doesn't matter how hard you try to use it. You just, you simply can't. It's just not possible. Look, the world may do things that we perceive are good, that we might claim to be good. But if God's will is not the reason, and if God is not glorified, as he says, he is glorified, is it really good? And is the influence of that truly good? Another illustration of this. I remember a few years ago, 
I think this was like a, a thing that was just a flavor for a while. There was a time where there were a lot of viral videos of people helping the homeless. And that's good in a sense, like the homeless should be helped and great. But I noticed that one person's video on giving the homeless person some food went viral. And if a video goes viral, you make a lot of money. And all of a sudden I noticed a lot of other viral videos started coming out where other people started doing this, recording themselves and you know, getting a lot of money from giving a pizza to a homeless person. And then as it goes viral, millions of views, you would yourself make a whole lot of money. And I have thought a lot about that where it's like, as those things are shared, I appreciate generosity. But to blow the trumpet so loudly and to seek so much praise and monetary gain from it, the influence of that. I'm just not sure that the influence of that really encourages true righteousness. And I want you to think about this. What if a cook or a doctor never washed their hands or their tools? Would you go to a restaurant that had a reputation where the people who make the food in the back, they never wash their hands? And someone maybe like cleans the back and they say, when I went in there, it was filthy. They hadn't cleaned it in months. Is that going to attract people to want to eat at that restaurant? It's going to make you sick at the thought. Or what if a doctor was seeing you and was going to perform surgery on you? And they told you, by the way, uh, I don't wear gloves and I don't wash my hands. And you saw that there was blood from past people on their hands from other surgeries they performed. Would you go under and let that person do surgery on you? Now imagine with those two situations, if the cook who never washed their hands or their tools, it's like, what's the big deal? You're still getting your food. In the end, the food is the same, isn't it? Or the doctor, what's the big deal? I'm still performing the surgery. I'm doing what you were asked, right? Would you accept that? The idea is if we are not purified by God and doing his will with a right heart, a right conscience, with a right mentality, we may do the thing that in the end looks kind of like righteousness. But where does God put the weight of influence, right? We need to think about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. You don't need to turn there, but just for the point. In Matthew 23, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he says something that, to me, has impacted me profoundly. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to make one proselyte, and yet when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now stop and think about that. You've got Jews, scribes and Pharisees, who are exhausting great effort and resources to convert people to what was in that time God's religion, the Jewish religion. They're exhausting all of this effort. This would involve traveling, teaching, money, sacrifice. Amazing. And yet Jesus says, because of your condition inwardly, because of who you really are, you make them twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's frightened me. That if I'm approaching evangelism, with pride, with selfish intentions. I may say the right things. I may convert people to a right form of church function and practice, but they can maintain their pride all along the way. And if a person maintains pride and only changes external practices, what has ultimately then been accomplished? And has someone then truly been converted? The greatest power of influence is primarily that which is within. Why was Jesus so effective in his ministry? 
Was it because he was so disciplined? Man, Jesus could stay up 20 hours straight and serve people. Therefore, his ministry was just so effective. Or man, Jesus, he studied how to be charismatic and methods for teaching. And when you listen to him, man, could he keep your attention? He was an effective speaker. Is that what made Jesus effective? Or was it that Jesus had a heart like no other? That Jesus' meditation and delight was in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditated day and night. And because of that, Jesus was like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which bears its fruit in its season to be shared and given to others. His leaf did not wither, and whatever he did, he prospered. It wasn't that Jesus was prioritizing just the external, although certainly Jesus applied God's will like no other. What ultimately was the greatest influence of Jesus' life? His heart condition, his mentality towards God, the condition of his conscience. So you look at verse 16. They profess to know God. They're saying the right things, certainly. But by their deeds, they deny him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good thing. So let's go back to verse 15 for a moment. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Nothing. Like a cook cooking food for groups of people yet never washing their hands, they might cook the same food of the same quality, in a sense, as any other place. But if their hands are filthy and coated in germs and that's getting in all the food, the reality is they're going to make everyone sick. And back in the past when people didn't realize helping a woman give birth to a baby, wash your hands first, or the woman's life could be put at risk because of the germs you're putting so close to vital areas of her body. A person can try to do good and look good, and if their mind and their conscience are defiled, nothing is pure. We need to learn to prioritize the mind and the conscience. So I want to finish asking two questions about the mind and the conscience. Are you striving to both maintain and develop both a pure mind and conscience? Throughout scripture, that's what God is always fighting for. And too often, to no avail of the listener. How often did Jesus strive to work with the Pharisees, to focus on what was within, to no avail? How often with Israel in the Old Testament did God have to plead with them to focus not just on the temple system and sacrifice, but the condition of your hearts and your love and your treatment for your neighbor? We need to learn to see the value of a pure mind and a pure conscience. So do your decisions and actions reflect Jesus' values and his instructions? With a pure mind, Jesus encourages us to have purity of mind not only in our external behavior, but in our eternal motivations, intentions, and reason for what we do. Um, For each of us, we meditate on things. You know, our mind centers on something through the day. Whether that be things that we just enjoy, things we're worried about, things we're trying to accomplish. Each of us meditates on something, and that's just the reality of our daily lives. We meditate on something. Are you deliberate, deliberate about trying to recenter your mind on God? Where's your prayer life every day? Is prayer just something you do out loud in front of others? Or is prayer a discipline of your daily life? You know, something that's helped me a lot is when people have helped me realize that I can be having a constant conversation with God in my mind because, surprise, surprise, 
God sees all of my thoughts. Other people may not see them, but God sees every thought and every intention. So it makes sense if God can already see my thoughts that I would be trying to bring my thoughts to God and pray to him continuously to help me with my thinking and regulating my thinking. And with the conscience, we've studied that in Romans chapter 2 briefly. But our conscience is what gives us an inner sense of judgment on our decisions, our intentions, and our thoughts. It's something that other people can't see. Um, and that's kind of been frightening to me through my adult life as I've tried to apply God's will is other people can't see my conscience. And so therefore, I can hide struggles I'm having. I can hide sinful attitudes. I can hide prideful intentions. I can hide lust that I'm allowing to fester in my mind. And if I don't tell anyone about it, that can fester and begin to overcome my being from the inside out. So with the conscience, I think first things first, how do you treat sin before anyone else finds out? Have you ever made a habit, and have you made a habit, of confessing sin to other people that's only happened in your mind and in your heart? Nothing's been outwardly manifested yet. There's nothing you've physically done. But if you made a habit of confessing things to other people that they wouldn't even know was a problem if you hadn't even told them, think about even your spouse. You know, there's such an intimacy within marriage. Certainly there's things in marriage where as husbands or as wives, we're able to tell our spouse that they would not even have been able to know if not for the fact that they were told by their spouse. Do you have a habit of correcting yourself in relation to God's word each week? You know, the reality is, just like what's being said in Titus chapter 1, in the world there is a gravitational pull away from God. And it requires a great deal of deliberation and thoughtfulness and, and care to constantly be recentering ourselves on God. And so there's, there's a sense of need for self-correction. Do you notice yourself making your own corrections of your own thoughts, your own behaviors? There might be things that you say when you're around others that maybe, I know this might sound strange, it might not be worth saying like, oh, sorry guys, that was totally wrong, but you just kind of have this reflective sense like, that really wasn't the right thing to say. That really wasn't helpful, or, or maybe that could have been damaging. You know, do you make those kind of corrections with yourself through the week, especially in interactions at work, when you complain at work? Is, the reality is we all struggle with complaining, right? When you complain, do you allow that to convict you and make a correction? Or do you let habits harden your conscience? Do you not fight with yourself for God's judgment? Do you not wrestle with God's judgments related to your thoughts, related to your behaviors? This may not be a struggle you have, but I've noticed for myself, I can begin excusing myself so frequently that that becomes the habit of my conscience. That what I'm doing, I don't want to fight with myself. It's inconvenient. It's just too difficult to wrestle with that decision. So whatever I did it, and it's okay. And then the next time it happens, it's a little bit easier to then validate that decision when initially there was a tenderness about it, and then a process, an inner dialogue of self-justification begins callousing your conscience. God gave us the conscience for self-conviction. You know, it's good when we do things that other people notice are wrong, but it's just not always going to be the case that the things that I need the most would be noticed by other people or even my own wife. So there's such a need for self-regulation. Verse 15 if the mind and the conscience are defiled, 
verse 16 is the conclusion. We need to be focused, not just on someone participating in things like assemblies or having a form of a relationship among the local church here, but having a Christ-centered focus. The kind of people we need to be from the inside first and then out. And that's the lesson for this morning. These are things that are hard to convey. Um, they're challenging for me to understand the way I need to grow. Um, and I hope it is in a profitable way convicting for you as well that we can both regulate our mind and our conscience better in service to God, but also in service to each other to do what is truly good. If you're here this morning and you recognize your need for the church here, uh, whether that be bringing forward something that you see you're struggling with, whether that be sin or your need for encouragement and help by the brethren, we always reserve a time here at the end of our assembly for that as we stand and sing the invitation song.